Go with me to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're going to be. Revelation chapter 21. Just by way of reminder, before we read this, um, I want to remind you that basically what has happened here is that the tribulation has ended. Christ has set His feet down on Mount Zion and uh, He has conquered in the battle of Armageddon. Then He has set up a um, millennial kingdom. And in this kingdom, that's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, but in this kingdom is where Christ rules on this earth and there have been sinners and there have been other people that survived the tribulation that have entered into this millennial kingdom. The Bible tells us that all the saints of heaven came back with Him and in some way, shape, or form, we stay with Jesus and we rule with Him during this, during this uh, thousand-year kingdom. And then we also learn that at the end of this thousand years that Satan, who has been bound for this thousand years, he is going to be released for just a period of time he is going to gather up a bunch of these sinners to rebel against the lordship of Jesus, to rebel against God and His authority. And as quickly as it starts, Jesus comes back and He wipes it out. And then after that, the great white throne judgment is set up. And ultimately, um, this is what He calls the, uh, uh, the second resurrection, if you will. And it's where all of the unbelievers are resurrected from the dead. The sea gives up the dead. Uh, death and Hades gives up all of their dead and they all stand before God at the great white throne judgment and um, then ultimately they are all cast into the lake of fire where the, where the beast, the, the antichrist, the false prophet and Satan himself are now at for all eternity. And then tonight, that's where we get into verse 1 of chapter 21. Right after this, notice what happens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why do we have to have a new heaven and a new earth? It's got to be, it's got to be wiped away. Everything's got to be burned up. Everything that has to this, what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is all this mortal, this sin-cursed body and all that is sin-cursed and all creation, it has to put on immortality. And so ultimately the example he gave is whenever you take a seed and you put it in the ground, you cover that seed up with the soil, what happens to that seed? And then out of that seed, what comes? New creation comes up. And Paul says, we don't know what kind of... He says, the body that is planted is not the same body with which it is raised. And so ultimately he wanted us to know that as this old body is planted in the ground, that one day out of this old body spring forth new life, but it's nothing like what went into the ground. It was sown a corruptible body, but it is raised an incorruptible body. It was sown a mortal body, but it is raised an immortal body. And so that is the same picture that we have here, is that everything that is mortal, everything that is cursed, it has to die. And then out of that death, God brings forth new life. And so what we saw in chapter 20 is the Bible says whenever He sat on the throne at the great white throne judgment, the Bible said that heaven and earth and all the sky fled away. Literally, it, it, it was gone. And out of that comes a new heaven and a new earth. And this is what we're seeing right here. So Paul, uh, John is just telling us what he sees in his vision. 
He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And as I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And why? Everything else that was mortal, everything else that was sinful, everything else that was cursed, everything that caused tears and mourning and hurt, all of that is now gone. And what is coming out of that is new and it is not sin-cursed. And it will never experience death. It will never experience tears. It will never experience mourning. None of that will ever have a chance at being there because there is nothing there that can cause sadness. There is nothing except joy there, and we see why. So in verses 1 through 5, if I was outlining this, and I like to outline things when I read it. Normally what I, what I do, I'll read through the entire chapter. I'll look at the context around it. Where is we coming from? How did we get here? Then I want to figure out, what do I see in this chapter? Like, um, what is it that, that I see taking place in these verses? And then in these verses, what's happening and what's happening? And what I saw first, I labeled as verses 1 through 5, the city of God. That's what I see. I see the city of God being described. This is what the city of God looked like. This is what the city of God was composed of. This is um, um, the, the leadership in the city of God. This is the way the relationships are going to be in the city of God. And so the first thing about the city of God that I saw in verse 1 is that it's new. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We'll get to that here in just a minute, but one of the things that I think is important to understand is that, again, when I'm trying to interpret Scripture, I'm trying to find other Scriptures to help me interpret that. And one of the things that you can go back and look is some old prophecies, like for instance in Isaiah chapter 66. In Isaiah really is a good one to lean on whenever you're going through Revelation, especially this part of Revelation. Um, Because Isaiah, for the most part, is talking about this glorious kingdom and then the eternal state that is coming. But in Isaiah chapter 66 and Basically what we're looking at here is the final judgment and the glory of the Lord to come. He's talking to um, the Israelites that are being carried off into captivity, but He says to them, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before Me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And so the thing that we see in that is that that's just one place of many places to where the prophets of old has, have always prophesied that there is going to come a new heaven and a new earth. 
They have always said that this old heaven and this this current um, heaven and this current earth are going to have to pass away, and a new heaven is going to come. So, what I love to see in the Word of God is unity. I love to be able to see that what the prophets prophesied in the Old Testament, we're still seeing in the New Testament. We're still looking for. Has a lot of it been fulfilled? Yes, a lot of it has been fulfilled. But there's still things that are to come that have not been fulfilled. Another place to look at would be Second Peter. Go with me to Second Peter chapter three. Peter also talked about this. So there was unity in all the authors of the of the Bible that um, lets us know that they were all on the same page. So apparently they were all receiving their information from the same source is basically what I'm getting at. And that's a beautiful thing to be able to see in the Word of God. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, look at beginning in verse... Um, let's begin in verse 12. waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are doing what? We're waiting for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so again, basically anywhere that you go that talks about the eternal state and what we're waiting on, each one of us are looking forward to this new heaven and this new earth and it is understood. And the reason that's important is because there are a lot of denominations that teach today that this is where heaven is going to be. That that we are going to build the kingdom here on this earth and this is going to be heaven. Well, this is a sad state if if this is what you have your hopes set in. I don't know about you, but there ain't nothing heavenly about this place. Now maybe when I look our kids in the eyes and yes, some relationships that we have, but for the most part, there is nothing heavenly about this place. And so I'm thankful that our understanding of this scripture is interpreted that we truly are waiting on a new heaven and a new earth and that every bit of the rest of this is going to burn up and dissolve. It's going to go away and we are going to enter into a place to where nothing but righteousness dwells. And that is our hope. This is the hope of the writers of, um, of um, the Old Testament. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. This will be the last one I'll do on this, and we'll move on. But Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse... Um, starting in verse 13. And remember, this is the faith chapter, right? So... He's talking about all the things they did by faith, following the Lord, trusting God, the sacrifices they made, the things that they did. And then notice what he says happened in verse 13. What happened to all these people? They all died. (laughs) They all died in faith. And look what next. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, looking forward to them and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But as it were, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has 
prepared for them a city. So in other words, the promise of God has never been heaven on earth. The promise of God has never been a redeemed body, a restored body on this earth. Uh, we got all these preachers out there today that are preaching about, uh, come up here and let me lay my hand on your head or smack you across the head or something and you'll be healed from all your afflictions and all your diseases. God never promised that in His Word. The fact of the matter is, the biblical authors told us we're patiently waiting, groaning, eagerly awaiting for these things to take place, for the redemption of our bodies, for the heavenly city that is coming. And so even though we're struggling and we're dealing with this cursed world right now, we're trusting in the promise of God and we're moving forward. Abraham, even though he was dwelling in tents, he believed there was a promised land. And he kept moving forward. He kept going forward. He kept trusting in it. And he died not having received the promise. But he saw it from afar off and he said, I believe it. And the Bible says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called His God. And so that's something that I want to be said about me. Uh, that's, some, that's the reason why people like Mark Curley, and when you see the way that he's sitting at hospital on his deathbed, proclaiming the goodness of God and, and, and declaring His righteousness and His, and His promises to be true. I mean, that's a, that's a man that the Bible would say, God is not ashamed to be called His God. That's a beautiful thing to see. Hey, would you give me a water, one of y'all? Excuse me. That's right. That's right. That's right. And That's right. And that's what you're going to see here in a minute is here in a few minutes he says, Behold, I make all things new. Thank you. He says, Behold, I make all things new. So, I mean, that's exactly right. As we, we are waiting on this new heaven and this new earth. This is our hope. This is our promise. And we're waiting on this because the first heaven and the first earth are going to pass away. And then it moves on and it says, The sea was no more. And so here's a few things that we learn about the city of God. Again, first off, it's new, completely new. There's nothing like it. Um, that the, There's nothing of the old that is in the new whatsoever. Everything in it is new. Thank you. <clears throat> and then, notice what he says next. He says, the sea was no more. What do you think that means? All right. Yeah. All right, anybody else? This is something that, again, the question is, do we interpret this literally? Do we interpret this symbolically? Um, I do believe that it could be interpreted literally. Um, another thing that you can do in this right here, and I like to do, is I like to look at different reference scriptures to see if there's any other scriptures that talk about this. Um, this right here. And so in... Let me get back to my verse here. Well, I didn't write it down. That's right. That's exactly right. 
Well, and I didn't write it down, so I apologize. Um, but um, let me see if I can find one right here. Look with me at uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> yeah. The sea was always known for its um, tumultuous ways, I guess you could say. Um, it was always claiming lives. It was a, it was a very um, mysterious place, a place of evils is the way the, the, the Jewish people saw it. That's right. And then um, notice the way that the vision that um, God gave in um, Revelation chapter 13. What came out of the sea of verse 1? That's right. And remember who the beast was? The beast was the Antichrist, right? And if you remember, the Bible tells us that the sea, I think it was in Revelation 17 is where it told us that. Um, but it said that the sea represented many, many peoples and many, um, and I'd have to find where that is. Revelation 17 verse 15. Notice what he says there. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so again, there we see that the sea in that context was symbolic. And it was symbolic of sinful peoples. It was symbolic of sinful nations, sinful tongues. So in one context, we could say that it is possible that sea here is possibly meant to be interpreted symbolically. Uh, because we've seen it represented symbolically previously. Um, and so it could be. Let's look at a few other scriptures and see if there is anywhere else that we can, uh, that we can turn to. Look with me at um, Isaiah 57. Well, and that, that's what I'm trying to get to, is that that is one possible interpretation, I believe. Again, here's what I'm trying to teach you. If you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, if you see what other authors have said and there is unity in the Bible, then we can make a pretty good assumption that possibly this is what it's talking about. Now, let me ask you this. Chris, is it true that in this place there's not going to be any more sinfulness, there's not going to be any more of uh, division in peoples and languages and nations. So could we say that that is absolutely a true statement, whether it's the correct interpretation of that or not? So we can still look at that and say it is a safe way to interpret it, right? Now look with me at Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 20. And this, is, this goes back to what Melinda was saying just a minute ago. Um, and so we can back up what she said with, with Scripture here. But it says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So again, if we were to take what that Scripture has to say about the sea and the comparison that it makes, what, do we, what, what would we say that it means here when it says, and the sea was no more? 
That's right. That there was peace where there wasn't peace. That no more mire and dirt is being turned up. And, and um, so anyway, I think that you could look at that and say that yes, according to other scriptures and according to what John saw the sea as in other scriptures in Revelation, I think you could make a determination that this could be interpreted symbolically. Now, there are many other teachers that are much smarter than I that will interpret it literally and say that there literally is no, it's no longer a water-based planet anymore. It's no longer um, uh, depend, where water is the source of life here for everything. That in this day and time, there is nothing else that depends on water. Everything depends on God as its source of life. And so, you know, there is the, it, the answer to it is this. We don't know exactly what the exact interpretation is of it, but either one of them could be true. Um, and either way it goes, I tend to lean toward what Chris said just a minute ago. When I look at these other scriptures, I tend to lean toward maybe it would be better to interpret that symbolically only because it has been shown symbolically in Revelation several other times before this. That's the only way, reason I'm saying it's safe to make a symbolic interpretation right here because we've seen it in the past with John doing this. All right. Any other time I would say to you, we should always translate it literally unless there is something there that specifically gives us reason to interpret it symbolically. Does that make sense? You know, that's pretty important too because again, and, and a highly John MacArthur, a very highly respected teacher, uh, one that I would shudder to try to stand and argue against, but he is one of those that, that believes that this is a literal translation, that there is no longer going to be a water-based planet and all this and that. But I can't help but go to Revelation 22 and say, what do you do with this river of life right here? <laughs> you know, um, um, or maybe it's supposed to be interpreted symbolically. Well, and he probably does. That's right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, he is the light. That's right. He is the light. And we'll see that, maybe not in this chapter, but the next maybe. But you're right. So, That's right. And, and again, that is that could be exactly what he's trying to do, is that saying that, you know, but is it literally no more water and no more sun, or is it symbolically that he is the light and he is the source of light? I don't believe that you would be in... And again, this is the reason why I say to you that um, these things can be difficult to come to a... come to an absolute in your in your interpretation of it. But I think it's important that you see the different ways that people interpret it. And I think it's important that you learn the ways that you might possibly interpret scriptures as you read through it. I think from now on when you get to certain things, your mind may go to thinking, okay, is this literal or is this symbolic? Like for instance, we're studying Isaiah right now. The lion and the lamb lay down together. There are many well-known teachers that interpret that symbolically that it is not a literal translation of a lion and a lamb that are going to lay down together. 
we believe as futurists, as the way we interpret the book of Revelation and the way we interpret prophecies, that it should be interpreted literally, that this is the kind of kingdom that Christ is going to rule over here on this earth. That's the kind of peace that He will bring when He's here. And again, did we not see that in His first coming? I've mentioned it Sunday morning. When He was on the boat and the winds and the waves were going so crazy that the the disciples said, if you don't wake up, we're going to die. And you remember what Jesus did? He got up and what did He do? Peace be still. And what happened? If the winds and the waves obey Him, do you not think that His rule and reign as King over the earth, that the the lion and the lamb will be able to lie down together? Literally? Right? That's right. And so, again, you know, there, there are several ways to interpret it. I think the, the thing that we can come to in this is that um, no matter how you interpret, the sea is no more. And there have been scholars that have debated that and what that means forever. And to me, it's, it's a little bit of a waste of time, really, to just argue over what this means. I think the most important thing to understand is this. He's just trying to describe to you the way this kingdom is that he sees. This new heaven and this new earth. It has no sea, and ultimately, does that mean no more dirt and mire that's stirred up and uh, unrest and no peace? Um, Is he talking about the wickedness that's no longer there? Is he talking about the many nations and tribes and tongues and languages that are no longer there? Is he talking about literally that we don't need that source of life anymore because he is our source of life? Here's the thing. Are they all true? To some degree, they're all true. And so no matter which way he meant, we may not know until we get there, but the point of the matter is, is that this kingdom and this this heavenly city is being described to us so that we understand you've never seen anything like this because the only thing you've known is the old curse. And what's happened to it? It's passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we've never seen anything like this. And that's what John is trying to describe. All right. Now let's go to... Yes, sir. Go ahead. All right. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, we are, again, like I said Sunday morning, we're learning and we're growing... To, to, to know what it means to live under that kind of kingship and that kind of authority right now. We're trying to be at peace with all men. We're trying to, we're not like the rest of the world. We're trying to rid ourselves of sin and, um, and things that don't belong. And, and we are, as uh, Revelation says, we're like a bride adorning ourselves, making ourselves ready uh, so that when He comes, we are... We have been getting closer and closer to what He's going to transform us into being anyway. Alright? Alright, now let's see what else we see about this city of God. So in verse 2 He says, And I saw the holy city. So first He saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now He sees a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
And then he describes it for us. He says, this heavenly city that he saw that's coming down out of heaven from God is prepared. So it's a city that is prepared, right? And it is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now some people try to say that this is the body of Christ coming down. I don't believe that's the case. I believe he's making a description here of the city. And he says when he looks at this city, it's like a bride that is adorned for her husband. What, what kind of comparison? What does that tell you about this city? It's the most beautiful city that he's ever seen. You know, that's the thing about it. When the bride comes down the aisle and you open those doors up, everybody stands and they turn and they look at her because she is, for the most part, supposed to be the most beautiful person in the room. You've never seen anything like her. And so that's exactly what John is trying to describe here is that this is the most beautiful city that you have ever seen in your life. And there are a few scriptures that we can look at here. If you were to look at... Um, look, how do you do what? What did she say? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to... Just, just because I'm an idiot, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, what did you say? It's a trap. I got you, Chris. All right. Go with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, let me ask you this. If I had ever said, you know, has anybody in here ever seen a ever seen an ugly baby? Don't answer that. But y'all know the truth. Come on. So what I mean by for the most part is, for the most part, the bride is usually the most beautiful thing in the room. <laughs> the, All right, so if you'll look at, we're going to collect some information here, and all I'm doing is look at some different references that have to do with this verse that says in chapter 21, this verse that says, and I saw the holy city. And so what are we talking about when we say the holy city? So in Revelation 11 verse 2, um, he's telling John here, he says, Do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, because it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And we know in this context that the holy city was what? Jerusalem, right? All right. And so Jerusalem was the, the capital city, if you will, of the holy land, right? And so what you're looking at here is you've got the new heaven and the new earth that come down, but then he sees a new holy city, a new Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem was the dwelling place of God Almighty. It was where the house of God Almighty was. It was where His mercy seat was. And so in some context here, what we're going to see is that 
we have a new city that's coming down that is as beautiful as anything that we have ever seen. And it is a place, and we're going to see what he means by this here in just a minute. Let's look at a few other scriptures. Look with me at Revelation 22, verse 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so here we have this holy city contains the tree of life, right? And so we have this holy city that now has the tree of life in it. We haven't seen this tree since when? The Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, I'm going to take the tree of life away lest they eat of that, and then there's no hope for them. And so ultimately, we now get to have a place in a city that contains the tree of life. So there's some more information. Go with me to Isaiah 52, verse 1. Let's see what else we can find out about this holy city. And I'm finding all these just through reference scriptures, just through um, different scriptures that it says. And all I'm doing is collecting information about holy city. That's what I'm looking for. So Isaiah 52 verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. And then you could go on and on. But again, the point that we see there is that in this context, Jerusalem was a place that was supposed to be the most beautiful out of all the land. Again, the dwelling place of God the capital city of all this new heaven and this new earth. So when you go back to Revelation chapter 21, and you see here in verse 2 that he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. So we see that this is now Jerusalem that has been completely made new. She is no longer corrupted and cursed by the things of this world. This is a place that, that we're going to find out here in a minute that God dwells there, God's people dwells there and God is their God, and they are His people. And this is going, and we're going to see what this holy city looks like, but it is the most beautiful place that John has ever seen before in his life. And then in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so this voice from the throne, and who sits on the throne? God, Jesus, the Lord Almighty says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So there again, God dwells in this new Jerusalem. This is the place where His throne is. This is the place where His glory dwells. This is the place that is the most beautiful in all the new heavens and all the new earth. And now, this is the place where God will actually dwell with men. And so we are literally going to be able to walk with Him, to be able to talk with Him, to be able to have a one-on-one literal relationship with Him. And that's what, again, all John is doing, he's describing what this new city, 
what this heavenly city, what this new heaven, everything he's seeing, this is what it's like. It's the most beautiful place he's ever seen. It's all new. There's nothing old in it. It is a place to where God and His throne and His glory dwells in this place with men. Now, you understand what that means? God dwells with men? That don't even make sense, does it? And it's because He's made us all new. But then keep on going. He's telling us more about it. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And so again, all He's doing is describing what this city of God is going to be like. And God is going to rule over it. God is going to be the one. And what does it mean? What do you think it means to be in the dwelling place of God? All right. If you're what? Yes, right? In His presence, as He said. You know, think about this. Y'all hear me say it a lot, but I don't, I don't think we get it. Everything that was created was created to display what? God's glory. You were created to be the image of His glory. When the angels looked at creation, and actually, now that I have studied Isaiah more thoroughly and studied Revelation more thoroughly, I think in Isaiah chapter 6 where the angels were around the throne of God and they looked at the heaven and the earth and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I can't help but wonder, was Isaiah having a vision of the new heaven and the new earth? Because that's what Isaiah's theme is all the way through there. And so when they looked at the new heaven and the new earth, they saw the glory of God in such a way. If you think about... What's the most beautiful place you've ever been, you've ever seen? Somebody give me something. The Grand Canyon. All right, anybody else? Huh? Canada? You ain't been many places. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, anybody else? Rocky Mountains? I know Letha and uh, Ronnie are in the Badlands right now. And they sent us a picture, and I mean, the Badlands are just things like, I've never seen anything like it before. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, um, but anyway, here's the point. As beautiful and as majestic as all of that is, it's still cursed. We look at it and still stand in awe of it, and yet it's crumbling. Yet it's dying day after day after day. Can you imagine a world where the glory of God is on display in created ways of a new heaven and a new earth in such a way that there is absolutely no curse. Can you imagine a Grand Canyon that has no curse? Can you imagine a Rocky Mountains that have no curse? Can you imagine an ocean that has no curse? Now I'm not saying that all of those things are in the new heaven because we don't know what the new heaven and the earth is going to be like. Nobody's ever been able to describe it. Everybody that's ever been to it and seen it said, I can't tell you what it's like. I, I don't have the words. And so whenever we look at these kind of things, when I look at this, I see that for us to be in the dwelling place of God, we get to see the glory of God and all of these things we get to enjoy right now are just cursed images of it. Can you imagine, and no you can't, but if you could, could you imagine the... Um, seeing the fullness, unadulterated glory of God in such a way that like we've never seen it before. 
That's exactly right. His hind parts. Mm -hmm. I joke around and say God mooned him. <laughs> but, he, but that's what it says. It says that God told Moses, I'm going to show you my hind parts. Literally, just the train of his garment is what he got to see. And yet it was so magnificent that Moses come down and the people said, you stay over there. <clears throat> and he had to put a veil over his face because the glory of God was so thick. But anyway, that's the point that I think that John is trying to describe. He's trying to describe the city of God in such a way that you understand you've never seen glory like this. You've never seen beauty like this. You've never seen newness like this. You have never seen anything like that and words fail to even describe it to you. But I'm going to do the best I can is what John's fixing to say here. And actually, I believe John quits. Um, I believe John... John don't even try anymore because notice what God says to him down in verse... Um, look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said to me, what? John's been writing. <laughs> what do you think happened? John just quit writing. John just quit writing. I mean, words fail at this point. And then... Um, he's doing everything he can do and now he turns around and he looks back at John and he says, hey, get your get you pen and start writing. You need to write this down. That's right. Yeah. Well, who couldn't get off track with this? I mean, but then notice what he says next in verse 4. Here's another thing we learned about this city. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. So what, what you see in here is he's just reinforcing the fact that none of the old is here anymore. The old is what caused tears. The old is what caused mourning. The old is what caused crying. The old is what caused pain. And so he says here that every tear is going to be gone, wiped away. De and why? Because death is going to be no more. Remember back in chapter 20, what happened to death? Death died. <laughs> Death got cast into the lake of fire. Death is eternally dying. It is no more. And then he says here, neither shall there be mourning. Why? Because there's no more death. <laughs> neither shall there be crying. Why? Because there's no more mourning over anything. Neither shall there be pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. So again, everything that's, being, that's happening here in verses 1 through 5 is the description of the city of God. This is what the city of God is like. It's a new heaven, it's a new earth, and then it's the place where God dwells that you've never seen anything like it before in your life. You've never seen anything like Him before in your life, but He's going to be with you. He's going to dwell and walk among you. He's going to be your God. You're going to be His people and you're going to enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. Look at verse 5. Also, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making what? Is there anything left out of that? Everything is being made new. Also, He said to me, Write this down, 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm going to stop right there, because next week what we'll do is we'll look at the people of this city. In verses 6 and 7, and then in verse 8, we're going to look at the people outside of this city. So the people of this city in verse 6 and 7, and the people outside this city in verse 8. What do we do with this scripture tonight? How do we apply it to our life? What can we do with it? Is there a, um, is there a prayer to pray? I want it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. If this is our future, come on. Come on. Let's go on and get here. Let's do this. All right. Anybody else? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there a promise to claim? It's not always going to be this way. One day, we will not experience death anymore. One day we won't mourn anymore. One day we won't cry anymore. One day we won't have pain anymore. And I am, I am keeping my eye fixed on that so that no matter what I experience in this life, I know that weeping may endure for the night, but what? This is how the saints of old got through the trials of this world, no matter what they faced. This is why the apostles were happily martyred and crucified upside down and burned in oil. This is why Isaiah was happily sawn in two by the Jews. Happily. Why? Because he knew his eyes was focused on what was coming. So there is a promise to claim. And if you keep your eyes on this promise and you keep claiming this promise, the Bible says God is not ashamed to be called your God because you believe Him, because you trust Him. God, you said it, I believe it, and I got my eyes fixed on it, and I'm headed toward it. I'm headed toward it. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Amen. All right. <clears throat> Anything, any questions tonight? All right, well, thank, thank you all for your time and attention, and uh, we'll close in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed.